Hello everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan Rayburn and we are at part 7 in our series on reworlding. In the previous episode I began to look at how we are affected by the worlds we inhabit, especially in terms of the tools we use. And in this and the next three episodes, I want to explore our inworldedness with reference to something that some of you may be familiar with. It is called spiral dynamics. This may seem at first to be a bit off the beaten hermeneutical track, but I don't think it is. After all, at the heart of philosophical hermeneutics, this question of how we experience interpretation, is the idea that we interpret and view the world within the world, and in a way through the world. To give you fair warning though, my dealing with spiral dynamics here in this episode is only introductory. Only in the next three episodes will I actually manage to get to some of the actual dynamics of the spiral. Still, even in this introduction to the spiral, there are some helpful insights for understanding how growth works. I've often had this experience after communicating at talks, lectures and the like, and even on this podcast, that what I say ends up being taken completely differently from how I meant it. And I'm sure that there are many of you who've had this experience in your own way. You mean something in one way, and maybe you even say it precisely in the way that you mean it, and yet it gets taken up completely wrongly. It's a stark reminder that all of us do not perceive the world the way it is, but perceive it the way we are. We hear all too often not what people say, but what we think they are saying, unless we are listening very carefully. This should inject a serious dose of epistemic humility into our own conceptualizations of the world. We are prone to misunderstanding things even as we understand them. All interpretation takes place within the worlds we are in. We speak from a world and we listen from a world and understanding is the thing that happens when the worlds of the communicators overlap as much as possible. The philosopher Hans George Gadamer refers to this as a fusion of horizons, meaning basically the connection of two or more different worlds of meaning. For the record, much of why it is difficult to understand anything, and especially the words of an ancient text like the Bible, is owed to the fact that the various horizons of meaning are in a way worlds apart. We are reading or listening to words from an ancient oral culture while living in a post-postmodern electronic culture after all. But thankfully there are tools we can use to begin to understand in what ways our worlds may differ from those of others, including other people or writers or texts. And one of those tools is what is known as spiral dynamics. The brilliance of spiral dynamics is that it also clues us into how we grow through various worlds of meaning ourselves. So if you don't know, spiral dynamics is a theory or model that describes the development of awareness or consciousness at both personal and collective levels. The assumption is that there are not only different kinds of awareness, but different levels or degrees of awareness. So it is a hierarchical model and not just a horizontal model. A hierarchical model is obviously looking at different tiers, whereas a horizontal model is something like uh, the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs model. But very importantly, it is a hierarchical model in the sense I mentioned back in the fourth episode in this series. The issue is a hierarchy of capacity, not a dominance hierarchy. 
The idea of differences in types and, and levels of awareness that spiral dynamics offers is fairly commonsensical when you really think about it. We assume, for instance, that the awareness of a dog and a person differ in kind and that the difference between an infant's awareness and that of an adult is a matter of degree. Maybe the difference between my awareness and that of a guru is a matter of both kind and degree. I guess that's debatable. Saints have attained both different and higher levels of consciousness than most of the rest of us have. It's when we get to the details of precisely what those levels of consciousness entail, as well as how one level shifts to another, that things get particularly interesting. Spiral Dynamics is rooted in the work of the late Claire W. Graves, who worked as a professor of psychology. Graves gave his own theory a few names, including this rather frightening one, I will say it, and uh, so prepare yourself. The Emergent Cyclical Double Helix Model of Adult Biopsychosocial Systems Development. When you hear that name, it's not difficult to, to tell why we, we are calling it Spiral Dynamics. Although, as crazy as the name sounds, the system itself is not all that difficult to understand. We're dealing with something that is emergent, as in something that is the result of a system. It is cyclical. It is double helix. That's what a spiral is. It's a model, because it is a model, of adult biopsychosocial systems development. In other words, we're dealing with human development at a systemic level that incorporates our biology, our psychology and our embeddedness within a given social order. Spiral dynamics is a scientific theory, so even if when you first encounter it it sounds a bit esoteric, the theory itself is grounded in very concrete observations. However, that said, there is an esoteric dimension to spiral dynamics that is not so easy to dismiss. In mapping the evolution of human consciousness over the last 100,000 years, Spiral Dynamics has meticulously described eight levels or stages of consciousness. Although there are some suggestions of new levels emerging, these new levels aren't quite clear just yet. Each level of consciousness has its own intelligence which seeks to match the world that it must adapt to by adopting particular values and value systems. These are known in more technical language as V-memes or value system configurations. Don't worry though about the technical term. The point is that a V-meme is a mode of consciousness that attracts particular values and ways of operating. There is, as this suggests, always a relationship between the mind and the world. And given the importance of being able to adapt to the environment, this means that no particular stage of consciousness is better than another. At least it cannot easily be thought of this way without compromising what the spiral has to teach us. For example, if you're at level 4 because that mode of awareness fits your environment best, then level 4 is the right level to be at because it means that level 4 thinking offers you the best way of coping with the world you are in. Along these lines, the theory is, and I do think this is right, that we can't expect people to act outside of their given level. If you're functioning at level 3, someone at level 5 is not going to change their behavior to suit your level of consciousness. And in such a case, communication gaps are pretty inevitable. Also, if you want to help people to transcend their current level of consciousness, 
it does not do anyone any good to preach without first giving bread, so to speak. Only if you change the conditions, the whole world basically is a shift in consciousness likely to follow. This is part of my point in the previous episode. Meanings rely on the world within which those meanings are communicated. So the levels of consciousness are really world views in the sense that the views cannot be divorced from the world that is inhabited. Very importantly, it is not possible to move to any of the levels without having gone through the previous stages. Very much like how it's impossible to become a teenager without first having been a child or becoming a child without first having been a toddler. There is a minor variation on this with regard to levels five and six, which is basically that some people, and I I do think this has got to do with uh, particular personality types and capacities, some people move from four to five while others move from four to six. Um, And in the highly tribal world of electronic media, this shift between four to six is becoming increasingly common. Um, Maybe one way of looking at it is that um, four jumps to six and and has a little bit of five uh, thrown in there, but I, I guess that will only make more sense uh, after the next episode. Usually, the different stages of consciousness or types of value systems are referred to by color. This was developed by Don Beck and Christopher Cowan, who took on Graves' work after he passed away. Um, they did this especially after doing some work with spiral dynamics in my own country, South Africa, to help with the transition from apartheid to post-apartheid. In fact, spiral dynamics was crucial with regard to rescuing South Africa from a potential civil war. Although, as is evident in the current political atmosphere of the country I live in and love, it seems that the wisdom of this model is being forgotten. And when something is being forgotten, it's a good idea to remind others of it. Anyway, back in apartheid days, the South African Nationalist Party and certain others had, as everyone knows, made the immoral decision to draw lines between people on the basis of categories of race. Now, what I do find very interesting is that critical race theorists today are making exactly the same mistake, which looks to me a lot like a dog returning to its vomit. But what Beck and Cowan did, following on from Graves, was realize that a different mode of categorization was needed to break people out of that narrow, racialized way of thinking. A mode of categorization that did not see people as lesser in any way if they happened to be in a different category. Thus, the need for using colors to describe the different levels. Beige, purple, red, blue, orange, green, and so on. I will say more about these colors in the next episode. As soon as Beck and Cowan did this, they found, as was to be expected, that people in, say, red would more easily understand each other, no matter their so-called racial designation or cultural background. And they would understand each other much better than, say, red would understand blue or orange. Most of the differences between people are rooted in ways of thinking or worldviews, not in arbitrary surface labels like racial designations. The issue is always, as I've been explaining, the inworldedness of people. Which brings me to another point about this model. 
when people are in transition from one level to another, they often find fairly irrational but often necessary ways to denigrate the level below them or the level above them. When red moves to blue, red is quickly vilified, but this is only after blue has been somewhat resisted by red to begin with. When blue moves to orange, orange starts off as the enemy, but soon blue itself becomes the enemy. Those of you who've gone through any kind of significant transition in the life of faith will find this to be particularly true. You will more than likely find yourself at some point looking down at your former self as if that former self were terribly stupid and naive for ever having believed what they did. If you have moved on to, say, a highly meticulous historicist empiricist model of Christianity with Jesus seminar style thinking, this would conform to the orange value system, there is a very good chance that fundamentalist or hyperactive Pentecostals at the blue value system level will seem to you to be unusually myopic, even though you were once one of those fundamentalist types. In reality, this is not to say that you are better than those fundamentalists, but rather simply that you don't see the world in that way anymore. You've needed to change because that's what the world has required of you. You have needed to change your paradigm because the older one wasn't working for the world that you're in. Now, what's interesting is that paradigm shifts are less about conflicting ways of seeing than they are often perceived to be. Often a paradigm shift is simply about losing interest in the problems of a previously adopted paradigm. Although that said, conflict will tend to emerge when people can't conceive of the problems you're wrestling with instead of their problems. Some people, for example, are going to be wrestling with very green level questions of equality, while others will be wrestling with more yellow level questions of competence. These are not necessarily at odds, they are just different ways of looking at things. To the green level thought process, the yellow level thinker is a bigot for not paying attention to inequalities, and the yellow level thinker will at the same time be quite perplexed by the green level thinker's apparent blindness to questions of competence. But, well, the trouble is that both are right even as both are looking at very different issues. The question then becomes, how do we get these two modes of thinking to speak to each other without utterly denigrating the issues that each level is trying to grapple with? So, just to be very clear, the real trouble is not transition, but getting stuck. And especially with getting stuck in believing that now that you're more clued up than you used to be, that you have finally arrived. After all, it is dead things that refuse to grow. Dead things can always go with the flow. Only living things can go against it. Only living things can go upstream. But growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of a cancer cell. Even though we have all been somewhat infected by non-teleological evolutionary thinking, I would stress that this is all meant to aim somewhere. And as I've already said, it's meant to aim at union with God. That is the goal. And it is possible to achieve this goal within each level of consciousness. Although, that said, it is also possible to set up ways to diminish the possibility of union with the divine at each level of consciousness. 
Struggle is pretty inevitable in all of this. Growth is never easy. And in reality, it's almost certainly always going to be painful. But as the gym enthusiast's cliche goes, no pain, no gain. An additional problem is, as I've hinted, treating one level of consciousness as if it were another. That is, expecting someone operating at level 3 to act as if they're at level 5. What we can do though, and we'll get to more on this as we go along, is expect someone at level 3 to live into the best of what that level offers. Just one last point is, is helpful to keep in mind before we end off this episode, which is just that when we move through different transitions, each stage involves an oscillation between the self and the other. So this is one of the interesting dynamics of, of personal growth, that we will side with others predominantly at one point and then move away and, and kind of retreat into the self at another level. And this is really necessary for any kind of growth. So in, in the spiral dynamics model, the odd numbers, 1, 3, 5, and 7, involve a focus on the I, the self. So I takes precedence over the tribe at these levels. The even numbers then, 2, 4, 6, and 8, have the tribe become the priority again. Although, importantly, the nature of the tribe and what the tribe is and means is going to be quite differently conceived of at each stage. This is very helpful for understanding how growth works. We need to oscillate from self to other in our growing. It seems to me that the more painful shift is the move towards the self, a kind of retreat towards the inner world, because this can often leave us feeling very isolated and vulnerable and very de-worlded. But spiral dynamics teaches us that this is all necessary. This is how growth works. In general, although less so for levels 7 and 8, and with obvious exceptions, the tribal consciousness really struggles to conceive of individuals apart from a tribe. Thus the tendency to lump whole groups of people together in either negative or positive ways. But the me-first consciousness also really struggles to comprehend the tribe. We need a way, and spiral dynamics is one such way, to articulate and understand and even appreciate both self and other strategies. In other words, we need to understand what kind of consciousness we are dealing with. There are many tools for understanding kinds of consciousness, including typologies I mentioned, um, for example, the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs models, but Spiral Dynamics offers one of the most helpful and insightful ones. In the next episode, I'll offer a brief overview of the types of consciousness or levels at play before we dive into some of the more provocative details, uh, specifically relating to how Spiral Dynamics applies to the Enneagram. So I hope you will join me for that. Until next time, please share this podcast with your friends if you can. And if you like, you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Take care.